You're listening to the Upper Room Frisco podcast. To learn more about UR Frisco, please visit upperroomfrisco.com. I hope that I've shown that you can be yourself in here and worship and be silly, be free. Childlikeness is so valued by the Father. Not childishness, childlikeness. When all the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, they were talking about all their spiritual accomplishments and why they would be the greatest or who gets to sit closest to Jesus in the coming age, who gets a bigger throne. And Jesus in that moment pulls a child in front of him and says, you're, you're all posturing, basically. You're all posturing and basing your worth or, or how I value you on what you can bring to me. This child can give me nothing and this child is greater in the kingdom than you right now. So Lord, make us like children again. Even our own inner child that we laid down on the altar of ministry resurrected, Lord. That felt good to say. I think that was for me. <laughs> You're like, oh, I'm worried if Jeremy gets more childlike. <laughs> but Lord, resurrect, resurrect that child within us that we stifled, that we shut down because we thought that we needed to be more serious for you. Y'all, I'm getting wrecked. I don't know if we're going to get to church. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Joel, you're a Joshua. You're a commander of armies. Like when you sing, the hosts of heaven move behind what you say. Yeah, man. (laughs) We might as well start the year off right, right? Worshiping the Lord, letting him recalibrate, letting him remove, letting him tear down, letting him build up, letting him pick up. You know, I, I heard something in worship that about knocked me over and uh, figured I'd share it with you. Um, I feel like I heard the Lord say pretty clearly that the earthquake at his death was his final heartbeat. And he said he chose to use his last heartbeat to open the tombs so that his friends could come out. And he said, once the veil was torn, the earth could hear my heart beat again. And that's what it's like when just one of his heart beats hits the earth. So then I just tranced out on that for a while. 
You guys know the word trance? It's in the Bible. It's when you get caught up into like a heavenly moment. The heavens around you become really, really evident. We wanted to do uh, some prophetic ministry, but I wanted to just set it up real quickly, a little bit differently. You can keep doing that. That's amazing. I sound like 10 times more anointed while you do that. I like to have fun in church, don't you guys? I don't feel like the world is jealous and beating down the doors of a bored church or a church that isn't happy. So um, in Luke 11, I think it begins in verse five, it says, which one of you who has a friend who comes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has come to me on a long journey and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers and says, it's already midnight, the door's locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. And it says, though this man won't give his friend bread, it says he's going to give him bread because of the man's boldness or because of the importunity. It's not just because he's his friend. It's because he was bold to ask, coming to him at midnight. So I say unto you, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened to you. And it goes on further to say, which one of you fathers, if your son asked for a fish, would give him a snake instead? Or if you asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? I love that little parable because Jesus, I believe he's, he's communicating that when people come to us on a long journey, they're tired. And within ourselves, we have nothing to set before them, but we can go knocking on our friend's door who has all the bread in the world, right? And so for the prophetic time tonight, I felt like the Lord is saying that there are people in here who have been on a long journey and need something good set before them. And so I asked Ryan and Hannah Crowell to just pray and ask the Lord for his heart for some people. And I also asked Shay Corcoran, who, right here, Shay, who is um, seasoned in the prophetic also. And when we prophesy, we speak to men for strengthening, encouragement, and comfort, like it says in 1 Corinthians 14, 3. And so what they're going to do is they're just going to single a couple people out and strengthen, encourage, and comfort you in the name of the Lord. Sound good? That's good, man. Thank you so much for playing. That's good. Why don't you give Kevin a hand? so good we could go home don't don't you love just going to churches sometimes where you don't even know who the pastor is thank you reverend liz thank you reverend ryan <laughs> church should be like that right it's uh first corinthians fourteen twenty six. what should we say then brethren when you gather together one has a teaching 
or a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation or a or a psalm. We we all come with something, and and I love when everybody gets moments to to shine. And then um, maybe maybe you're not the one who's up front, but you you got a chance to lay hands on someone. And while you're here, you get a chance to smile at someone and encourage them. And while you're here, you don't have to wait for the the three people who are prophesying up here tonight. You can you can go prophesy to someone or strengthen and encourage or comfort someone. And that's like a spiritual potluck where we all bring something. Happy New Year, everybody. In case you didn't know, my name's Jeremy. I'm married to uh, that saint right there, Ashley Shuck. We have five kids, and this is what we call spiritual family. This is this is our home, and I have the, the privilege, honor, and responsibility of, of shepherding and pastoring, and, and it's really a joy. 2020 was crazy. It was still a joy to do it with you guys. Um, so 2021 is here, and... Um, this is a year where nothing will go wrong, right? <laughs> Everything's going to work out exactly as we plan. <laughs> no obstacles, right? It's a year of no obstacles. <laughs> Probably not. But we can have so much new hope in Jesus, so much joy. I'm reminded of that verse where it says, I, I will be your, your fire within and like a wall of fire around so, like, if everything around is falling apart inside, you still have paradise with Christ. So, um, I once heard a wise man say that usually things don't go wrong, they usually start off wrong. And I thought that was a good um, saying for the, the first uh, gathering of the year. You know, it's kind of like if you're, on a, if you're on a long journey, and your compass is one degree off, you're going to be fine for probably many miles, you know, five, ten miles. You'll be fine if your compass is one degree off. But if you're talking about a a thousand-mile journey, and your compass is one degree off, you're going to end up being so far away from your destination by the time you get there. And along the way, there are, um, you know, on either side of that, path of life, that true north, Jesus being our compass, there are, there are ditches, and they, the, the two most common traps, or I should say the two biggest traps, have come with, a, they've been called a lot of different things. I'm just going to refer to the two ditches on either side of this path tonight as religion and lawlessness. Um, and there, but there is a, an antidote or a, a heart posture that will keep you from ever falling into either one of them. And I would say that all the traps in life are completely avoidable or escapable if we do just this one thing, if we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter, and finisher of our faith. When our eyes are on Jesus, even if we end up in some difficult place, he's going to redeem it so beautifully that we'll think that he led us into it. Does that make sense? But there's a heart posture that we can uh, keep that I I want us to to take hold of tonight. Um, 
And I'm going to get to that here in just a second. But first, I, I want to talk about, I want to just define really quickly what I mean by religion and what I mean by lawlessness. A religious spirit or a mindset is, it's an oppressive, dare I say, demonic mindset that seeks to substitute religious activity for the trans, transformative power of friendship with God. The primary ob objective of a religious spirit is to have the church maintain an outward form of godliness while denying the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Timothy 3.5. So it's all pomp and no power. This is accomplished by seeking to replace true repentance and grace with religious performance and works. So the religious spirit attaches works to salvation. It either front loads or back loads the gospel with all these things that you need to do to get yourself there. It operates in legalism. The religious spirit is really proud of our spiritual accomplishments. It parades itself. It also manifests in control and manipulation. It manifests uh, as a critical spirit and fault-finding spirit also. And um, it's like... The, can you guys uh, get ready to put that slide up? It's, it's like the, have you guys ever heard the phrase, the morality police? Well, when I was working on my notes today, I drove home from the coffee shop before coming here, and I was just thinking about the morality police. And um, after I'd worked on these notes, I drive past this church, and there's um, police lights in the parking lot, and they'd pulled someone over, and I heard the Lord say that the, the law had arrested someone again. So, anyway, I look around for <laughs> things like that, <laughs> you know, like prophetically looking to see if God's confirming something. So anyway, can you put that quote up? This is from uh, one of my favorite quotes um, from Archbishop Lazar. He was once uh, the Archbishop over the North American Orthodox Church says, true morality consists far more in how well we care for others than in the external behavior we demand of others. This is why moralism is truly immoral. And moreover, moralism is the last refuge of the pervert. Fear cannot produce sincere repentance, but only trigger a survival instinct which produces a false formula of repentance. Such repentance is not about being sorry for sins, but about regretting that you can't get away with them. Only love can produce a true heartfelt repentance. Moral outrage is a form of public confession. We hate most in others what we fear most in ourselves. Pretty poetic, right? That guy's got it going on. Um, That, that last phrase there, moral outrage, is a form of confession. So he, uh, Archbishop Lazar, was speaking with one of my other favorite teachers. And it was during the time when, um, y'all remember Ted Haggart from Colorado Springs? He delivered this public address. And it was a scathing, harsh rebuke for anyone who had dabbled with homosexuality or is given to homosexuality, anyone with same-sex attraction, it was graceless. And he even had the camera 
down below him so that he could be looking down at it. It, was, it, wasn't, even, it wasn't even stereotypical for him. And so Anton Lazar is talking to one of my other favorite teachers, and Anton says that same phrase, that famous quote again. He says, moral outrage. So what that guy was doing, out, like moral outrage, like being so loud and without grace at some sort of sin that he's condemning. Moral outrage is a form of public confession, but this time he said, for the soul with deeply repressed passions. And then he prophesied and he said, I give him six months before he falls. It was six months to the day that everything went public with the adultery and and the sexual failures and sins in his life. Crazy, huh? Right now, you might be wondering how I know so much about the religious spirit. Because I've spent years infected with probably the, the most vile case of the religies ever diagnosed. Somehow, I didn't just have the religies either. I had the religies and the Jezzies. It was, I don't even know how that's possible, but <laughs> I had them both. And I was the guy who was very loud about other people's bad behavior. And I was really good at pointing out when people were doing things wrong and telling them how to do things right. I was a worship leader and a, and a youth leader. And, and, so, and then I would, I would tell my, my friends that, you know, just condemn them for their, their wild behavior and the things that they do at parties. And... Um, Within about six months of me uh, graduating high school with that kind of mentality, I was uh, selling cocaine and ecstasy and taking them both and, and sleeping with, with young women. And I had gone so far from you know, the, the statutes of the Lord. You know, when I was a kid, I would highlight all the verses where the Bible is warning against evil behavior. And then I, I, I used those highlights almost like a bucket list of things that I then wanted to try. That's how blinding and how devastating religion is. And what happened is I flipped from religion straight into lawlessness. And that's the other ditch. And it's just common. If you get stuck in one, sometimes the, if you start to get freed from it, you, you, you end up slingshotting over to the other one. And lawlessness, I want to define real quick, it's... It's a lot less nuanced, and it's a lot easier to, de- to define. It's just to cast aside all moral restraint, to cast aside any kind of order in our life in order to gratify the carnal desires of our flesh. It's to rebel against our own righteousness. It's to actually go against the manufacturer's design. And Peter addresses this. It's 1 Peter 4.3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Similarly, in 2 Peter 3.17, it says, You therefore, knowing this beforehand, take, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the flesh. Walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the flesh. Religion gets it backwards. We say, don't gratify the flesh, and you'll walk by the Spirit. 
So both these ditches are heavily addressed and even personified in Scripture by certain individuals. But the, the ditch avoiding heart posture that I want to talk about tonight, it might not be exactly what you're thinking. It's kind of counterintuitive. It's called rest. <laughs> yeah, who's ready to rest for 90 days? Come on. In fact, we should probably just declare a fast. It's called a self-focused fast, a self-improvement fast. Just stop it. So rest, rest elevates us so far above the ditches that they become a non-issue. Because when we're resting in Jesus, both fasting and feasting are worship. When we're resting in Jesus, then both action and waiting are worship to him. This proper heart posture is totally personified by one biblical hero that I want to talk about tonight, and her name is Mary. Mary from Bethany. And she comes on the scene in a pretty awesome way. And I'm going to read her introduction. It's out of Luke 10, 38. And I want you, as I'm reading about her, just look for the attack of the religious spirit. Because those who rest right get attacked by religion most. <laughs> I thought it was good. 1038, Luke 1038. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. What a cool tagline. That's your, that's your middle name, Mary, who sits at the Lord's feet. Isaac who sits at the Lord's feet. Eric, who sits at the Lord's feet. Frederick, who sits at the Lord's feet. It's your middle name. So she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her and said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So this is Mary's awesome entry, but it's also Martha. It's when Martha becomes an adjective. <laughs> kind of like how another name became an adjective in 2020. I know so many good Karens. Lord, just protect their hearts. Every Karen out there, just love Karens. So Martha in this moment, Martha in this moment embodied the trap of religion. Serving God when God wanted to chill and connect. Or doing things for God without enjoying him. Early in 2020, I started singing a song whenever my worship to the Lord didn't feel quite right, whether it was in my car or, or here, if I ever felt an ounce of striving come up, I would start singing. I need some water for this moment. I would sing, what would happen if I didn't press in? What would happen if I just leaned back? What would happen if it didn't depend? 
on my strength, but it's just a fact that I've been seated with Christ, seated with Christ high above, seated with Christ, seated with Christ in his love. What would happen if I didn't press in? What would happen if I just leaned back? What would happen if it didn't depend on my strength? But it's just a fact that I've been seated with Christ, seated with Christ high above. So often we hear words like, you got to contend, you got to press in, you got to push through. But I thought that I had a savior who contended for me, pressed into the heavens and pushed through the veil on my behalf. And in the process, carried my hope with him and set it like an anchor in the heavens, immovable. What if resting in what he has done is the most violent thing that we can do? What if resting in what he did is the most world-shifting thing that we can do? It's the most counterintuitive thing, and it's a kingdom reality that when you feel pushed, you sit down. Because God doesn't push, he draws. See, Mary is the opposite of Martha in this scene, and she embodies this posture of rest. She's like, yeah, there's, there's stuff to do, but I'm not leaving his feet. I wouldn't leave this place for anything. And guys, listen, what she accomplished in that moment of rest I would dare to say has borne more fruit eternally in the hearts of billions of people who follow her example than countless kingdom advancing things that we've done. You guys catch that? Mary rested and it changed the world for generations. So inside all of us is a little Pharisee and a little Mary. Or, or you can think of it as Martha and Mary, and they're, they're, they're right there. And whichever one you feed grows. The little Pharisee feeds on our devotion to God. The little Mary feeds on God's devotion to us. So now that we know that Mary is cool, and she chose the good part, which we get to choose. I want to look at the rest of her life. This is in John chapter 11, verses 1. This is when we find out that her brother is really sick. It says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was this, Martha, or it was this Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when, Jesus heard, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus and her sister and Lazarus. Uh, 
So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That sentence doesn't make any sense unless there's something else going on, right? I'm sure some of y'all have thought about it. Jesus loves Lazarus, and so when he hears he's sick, he doesn't do anything. For two days, he just sits, letting Lazarus stew over there, pass away. It's almost as if God wanted everyone to see a three-day dead man come back. This is verse uh, 21, John 11, 21. This is uh, after Jesus finally does go to Bethany to address the situation. Martha comes out to uh, meet Jesus when she hears that he's near, and, he, and she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming in the world. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. You know, I, I wasn't obviously at this moment, but I would imagine that this is Jesus talking to Martha, who, and, and he knows that Martha's a little bit up in her head, and she's the one that, that works when it's time to rest, and, and, and he, she engages with Jesus after her brother dies in a theological debate, and it's like a, a word-wrangling moment where, where Martha is proving her own faith, her own devotion, or her own understanding of the situation, and then Jesus is like, please go get Mary. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that the woman who sat at Jesus' feet wasn't the one that ran out of the city to get him? It's not stereotypical of Mary who sits at the feet of Jesus. Do you think that maybe she was angry at the Lord? for not coming when they called. Or maybe Jesus wanted Mary alone. This is John eleven thirty. Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was in the place Martha had met him. So it's literally saying that Jesus is still not going in. He's lingering for some reason, for some sort of encounter. And he only does what he sees the Father doing. This is what I think. I think the Father wanted him to have an encounter with Mary. We think that Jesus is amazing when we encounter him, right? And we weep when we feel his presence. But what if God knew that Mary's love was so deep for Jesus that he wanted his son to have an encounter with Mary's love so Jesus would weep? And that's what we get. We get unfiltered Mary. This is verse uh, 1131. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her, uh, they saw Mary rise and quickly go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, Lord, 
If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. I think that Mary knew Jesus well enough that she could be herself, be honest, and literally complain to him, saying, basically, why weren't you here? If you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died, and I know that you could have gotten here. Martha said the same thing. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Martha gets a theological discussion, and Mary gets a resurrection. Let's flip over to uh, John chapter 12, carrying on through the the life of Mary. This is uh, John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of her disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, a year's wages, and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. What she has done... She's done for my burial. She's anointed me for my burial. And he says, the poor you always have with you, but you won't always have me. And we know from uh, this same account in the book of Matthew that this was the moment that Judas, Judas had had it. He actually chose this moment to be the time that he would go out and betray Jesus for the pieces of silver. The other disciples were the same You know, they said, why are you doing this? Why this waste? This could have been given to the poor. But Mary didn't care. She had heard Jesus talk about his death several times, and I think that she knew divinely that this was time. This was the moment. And she loved Jesus so much that she didn't want him. She wanted him to smell amazing while he was going through the worst ordeal of his life. She's the one who hangs on his every word. She's weeping at the death of Lazarus. She's pouring out her perfume, wiping his feet, anointing him for burial, and then she's at the cross when Jesus is deserted by everyone except for Mary, 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 and John. Which literally translated is bitterness, 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 grace. It's a teaching for another day. This is when Jesus became sin for us. He's in unimaginable pain. He's turned down the bitter gall to to dull the pain. And he's working for every breath that he can get for the joy set before him, which is you. And as he's deserted by everyone, and he inhales... He smells the fragrance of Mary's love. 
strengthening him, reminding him, speaking to him as to why he's there in that moment, reminding him. And when Jesus heard, when Mary heard why this waste, when Jesus was on the, on the cross pouring out everything he had, the accuser was saying to him the same thing, why this waste, Jesus? Why are you pouring out your life like this? You're only 33 years old. You had decades ahead of you when you could have been an itinerant minister, the greatest pastor that ever lived, write books on miracles. You could have impacted the nations. Why this waste, Jesus? Why are you pouring yourself out like this? When Mary had poured out her perfume on Jesus for his burial, he also said one other thing. He said, Wherever this story is told, or wherever this gospel is told, what she has done will also be told. Have you guys ever smelled the fragrance of the Lord before? Show up in a room? It's Mary's perfume. Scripture tells us that he was anointed by Mary's perfume for burial. So he took that smell into the grave and rose with it on his same skin. Ascended into heaven. And now when he shows up, what Mary did is known to everyone. It's the most ultimate graffiti tag ever. He's saying, wherever I go, the smell of Mary's love goes with me. He smells like Mary. He sits on David's throne. He drinks from Jacob's well, which means that your life matters. Your love matters. I wanted to read um, the account of Jesus' resurrection, but I'm also very aware of the time that we have for the rest of the evening. Suffice to say that um, Mary and Mary, Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene, they get the first encounter with the resurrected Lord and they become the apostles to the apostles with the first mission from God to go tell the good news. Mary, they get front row seats to the greatest moment in human history. Guys, at the beginning of the year, I just want you guys to know that we're his kids and our love moves him and that we can rest in what he's done for us and that he is covered in the fragrance of your worship. Our lives matter, but I also want you to know that our starting point is where he finished. We begin, we start at the it is finished line. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We rest in his finished work. And from that place of rest, we'll do even greater things than he did. I want to invite you guys into something um, that we're going to do at the beginning of the year, all of Upper Room. We're going to, we're going to fast for 21 days. And I love to fast because um, it turns into a feast for me. Um, it's when I sneak all the peanut butter out of the cabinet at night. I'm just kidding. Um, I get to feast on his presence. When I, whenever I fast, I have like this increased ability to sense his movements. And I have more dreams in the night. 
I lose the seven pounds I couldn't get rid of in 2020. Um, now we're going to fast for, for uh, 21 days and enjoy God. We're going to minister to his heart through worship and prayer, and we're going to experience his presence transforming lives. And I want to invite you guys to do it with me. Um, logistically, you can fast however you're inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so. We won't be held accountable. <laughs> so anyway, you can, you can not eat food. You could not eat meat. You could fast uh, social media. There's all sorts of ways to fast, but I want to challenge you guys to, um, to fast and, and experience the Lord meet you, experience the Lord meeting you in that place. Will you guys stand with me? Let's pray our way into uh, 2021 together. Father, thank you for uh, the examples that we get to follow of incredible heroes of the faith that are in Scripture. Thank you that uh, Mary rested at your feet, and now we get to rest at your feet. Thank you that we got to see Mary pour out her perfume. Thank you we, we get to see Mary weep before you. Thank you that you gave us an inside look at your heart in that moment. We got to see you weep, real tears from real anguish. And God, we want to be like that. We want to rest well. This year, Lord, we want 2021 to be a year when we have divine rest in you, a Sabbath rest at all times in our inner world. I ask that you'd bless us in this endeavor of fasting and slowing down and resting and sitting down. I always thought a fast should be called a slow. Lord, <laughs> it's what happens to my brain. Uh, <laughs> Father, thank you for all the good things you have in store for us this year. Thank you that uh, Christmas morning is how you feel every day, waiting for us to unwrap the good things that you have planned for us. I ask that every day, every moment this year, our hearts are turned to you in, in gratitude and rest. In Jesus' name, amen.